Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. And welcome to today's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. And today we're going to revisit an old topic, a topic going back to episode maybe 10 in the Talking Biotech series. And I remember back in 2015 when that was weeks ahead in the future, and I was looking forward to it. And this is on the light-resistant American chestnut. Well, American chestnuts are an important keystone species and had a significant role in forests at one time. And we'll talk about what happened to that, as well as a solution to potentially bring it back to its former prominence. So we're speaking with Eric Carlson. He's a PhD student at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. So welcome back to the podcast, Eric. Thanks for having me on again, Kevin. Yeah, and you were, I seem to remember an email where you mentioned that you used to listen to this podcast long before you had a actual career in biotechnology. Yeah, that's right. I was scrubbing out dishware in my undergrad research position, listening to Talking Biotech, listening to the, actually the American Chestnut episode before I joined the lab. Okay. And, and the funny part there is that was with Jared Westfeld, who was in a class I taught. <laughs> I taught his molecular biology course. Right. Jared Westbrook. Westbrook. Yeah. Well, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while, yeah, probably about 15 years, but I guess he's doing great. And, and so he was doing another approach to solve the same problem. But let, let's go back to the beginning of this. And I, it's a super cool project. And let me start out by saying the main reason I wanted to have you back on again is to kind of do a project update, but also because it's really important that anyone listening has an opportunity to take action now, there is a public comment period open on this technology, which is going to be a, I'll ask you about that. I guess it's a formal release of this material and it stands to solve a very important problem in conservation. And it's a really exciting solution. And I wanted to mention this early for folks who maybe are listening early to the podcast and would, wouldn't catch this if we put it at the end. Listen today. The main goal of this is to help give you the information you need to write a very cogent response in that public comments section, because we want not just the throwaway boilerplate stuff. We want a well, very well thought out, rationalized comment, and we'll give directions to where to do that at the end. So Eric, let's start out at the beginning. How dominant was the American chestnut in the Eastern forest prior to say 1900? So that's a really interesting question. There's actually been a little bit of controversy in that because uh, it's actually been a bit romanticized how prevalent it was. So the, going back some time, people said that it was basically 25% of the entire forest was American chestnut. And that was definitely true in some places throughout the range. So the range of the American chestnut was from Georgia to Maine, basically the, the entire east coast of, of North America. Um, and there were some places where it was, could definitely be considered dominant, some areas in like Pennsylvania and, and in the Carolinas. 
but you could also find it scattered throughout the entire range in, in different densities. And something that's actually really interesting with the history of the American chestnut in those areas where it was very dominant, some people believe that may have to do with indigenous people's uh, forest management regimens where they would actually burn forests and select for American chestnuts and do other things too, like remove ticks and pests. But uh, the American chestnut in some places became, you know, almost pure stands. In some places it became half the population. But uh, the bottom line is throughout the entire range, the American chestnut was found. Okay. Yeah. And I always drew, use that 25% figure myself. I, I mention it all the time because it seems to be the good statistic to throw out there. So thank you for that. So this is a tree species that, that was at least frequent along the Eastern seaboard and in, in and around Appalachia and uh, really a keystone species with respect to it, how it would contribute to local ecology and the, the species that are there. What happened that led to its decline? So in the 1800s, people began importing Asian species of chestnut, including a Japanese chestnut, primarily Japanese chestnut. And when they brought those over, they inadvertently introduced a fungal pathogen called Chrysonectria parasitica. And in Asia, this, this fungus kind of lives almost a commensal lifestyle with the, the chestnut species there that are mostly resistant to it. But when it came to the United States and was introduced to the American chestnut and its relatives that were naive to the pathogen, it quickly burned through the entire range and decimated the species. Yeah, so this, is a, this was a pretty big deal because and it went pretty fast, right? I mean, it was over the course of less than a decade. After its initial discovery in L4, it had basically gone through the entire range by 1950. Okay, so it took a couple decades to get through there, but the entire range was decimated. It was a tree in the Bronx Zoo. I seem to remember, is that more lore? Yes, that was when it was actually discovered and identified. So it was the, the trees in New York City began getting sick, and a biologist named Merkel discovered these fungal infections and, and named it and identified it. But it was probably introduced in the 1870s. Okay, so that so just that it was in a place where somebody noticed it or where, where people would notice it, they really brought it to attention. So that so it may have been around longer than we originally are were told by you know the by the lore around the the zoo and a tree planted from China. You know that that old story. Right. Yeah. So it had already probably spread for some time before people realized it was a was a real problem and, and something new. Okay. Well, tell me more about this pathogen. Is it, so it's a fungus and you, you mentioned its name, but where did it come from and where does it reside naturally? Yes, this is a fungus called Cryphonectria parasitica, or this common name is just the chestnut blight fungus. And it comes from Asia. And in Asia, it lives mostly as a saprotrophic fungus, which means it kind of colonizes the trees and waits for them to die and then consumes their dead tissue. Like if they drop a branch or if the tree falls down, then it would consume it. But in weakened trees or in non-resistant trees, it will actually go ahead and kill the tree and then consume it as opposed to waiting for it to die from, from other causes. I see. So I was always surprised to learn about this part of it. And you have, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, is that 
this doesn't kill the tree. And that if you go into the forest, that there's a lot of the original American chestnut material that still is there, just really limping along. And that there may be root systems with suckers that are still there, this kind of thing, that really do stand as a potential source of good wild genetics in the event that you could somehow overcome the fungus. Yeah, that's right. It's one of the real fortunate characteristics of the American chestnut is it has the ability to re-sprout from the stump. So the fungus will kill the tree above the ground line, but it's not able to penetrate the soil and kill the roots because the, the natural soil microbiota outcompete the fungus. And so it can't really get in there. So the trees are able to re-sprout from the stump and ascend up shoots uh, that continue to survive for a period of time before they too are reinfected and killed back down to the ground in kind of a repeating cycle. Okay, and you mentioned the role of this in Asia. There are species of chestnut that are resistant to this fungus, right? Yeah, the species from Asia, like Japanese chestnut, Chinese chestnut, there's a few dwarf chestnut species called seguins, and all of those have some level of resistance to blight. Okay, and so why not just use those to genetically improve the American chestnut just by crossing in that resistance gene? Yeah, that would be great if we were able to do that. And people have been pursuing that exact goal for decades now. And in theory, if resistance was controlled by one, two, you know, three or four genes, that would be entirely possible. But the issue is that resistance in those Asian chestnut species is quantitative and it's controlled by many different genes. In fact, uh, doing genomic studies, we found that resistance loci are found on 12 out of 12 of the chestnut chromosomes. So, and with unknown numbers of genes at each loci. So it's controlled by many different genes, which makes it very difficult to breed for. Oh, also the fact that it's a tree. How long do you have to wait before it flowers? In field conditions, it takes three to five years for male flowering and then another maybe eight to 10 years for female flowering. And uh, trees are monoecious, so they have both male and female parts. Okay, so you have to really have to wait for eight years to have female germplasm available for pollination. So every generation you do, you know, you're, you're, if you're a geneticist, you might get a couple generations in a lifetime to be able to study the resistance. Yeah, that's one of the things that's working with trees is things take a very long time. Every generation is years. So yeah, progress can be slow. <laughs> You're telling me. I, I play with genetics and trees because I don't want to have my life depend on it. But it, it does take long and it's frustrating because that juvenility period can be so long. So let's talk about the genetics of the solution. So you've been working with the team that has been working on Darling 58 for a number of years now. And what is the genetic tweak that was made to the American chestnut to give it resistance to this parasite? A gene from wheat called oxalate oxidase was inserted into American chestnut embryos. And what oxalate oxidase does is detoxifies the main weapon of the blight fungus. The blight fungus secretes this strong organic acid called, called oxalic acid, or oxalate is another name for it. And what the oxoenzyme does 
is it breaks that oxalic acid down into carbon monoxide and hydrogen peroxide, which are not toxic to the tree. Yeah, the tree sorts those things out pretty easily. Right. Yeah. So, so, so this is basically an enzyme that comes from wheat that you add to American chestnut that now makes it able to essentially disarm the fungus. So do I have that right so far? Yep, that's right. Okay, cool. So we're talking to Eric Carlson. He's on the team that's working on the blight-resistant fungus that currently is going through the kind of the last phases of deregulation. There's a public comment period where your comments are extremely welcome. The folks who hate this technology are with boiler letters that have been supplied by different groups that don't like genetically engineered trees or technology in general. And your voice giving a very cogent response that's evidence-based really will help the regulators. So this is Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we're speaking with Eric Carlson. He's a PhD student who's working on the, the blight-resistant chestnut project. And again, as I mentioned before, public comment period is open and would like your words. And so if you could go to regulations.gov forward slash document, in forward slash APHIS, APHIS 2020 0030 829, you can access the docket. I'll also include a much more convenient clickable link in the show notes of this particular episode, but that'll be in the transcript as well. So if you need to find it, that's where it'll be. So let's go back to uh, talking about the science. Before we go further, though, this work has been in place for a long time, and folks have been working on this for a while. How long has that been? And just to kind of give credit where credit is due, who conceived this plan and who has been overseeing the research so far? Yeah, so this project began back in 1990. So the founding members of the New York chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation, that was Herb Darling and Stan Wersig, they approached Dr. Bill Powell and Dr. Chuck Maynard at SUNY ESF, uh, the school that I go to, and they wanted to ask them if they could use some of these new modern molecular biology tools that were revolutionizing agricultural biotechnology and use those in American chestnut for this blight issue. People had been doing the breeding program for a long time at that point but they were interested in this new type of technology. And so they approached Dr. Powell and Dr. Maynard who were studying different types of tissue culture and genes at SUNY SF to see if they could maybe implement this type of technology. And that's when it all started. So from that initial point, it took another about 20 years to develop a tissue culture process and a transformation process and to find good candidate genes and then another 12 years to where we are now. So it was, it was about a little over 30 years now that the project has been in progress. 
Yeah, maybe you could speak to this part a little bit too, is that usually people who are not real excited about genetic engineering are upset because it gets, because it's used around food, right? It's used to modify the crop plants that generate the food we eat. So what has the reception been like to the idea of doing something that would favor an ecological conservation effort? And has it, has it received as much pushback as some of these other issues in genetic engineering? Well, it's a really interesting topic to talk about the controversy behind it because our, our project really challenges a lot of the preconceived notions that people have about genetic engineering. A lot of people tie up genetic engineering, big agrochemical companies, and with the use of pesticides and use of plant, plant patents and things like that. And none of those are really relevant to, to our project. We're, we're not doing any of those things. And so it's almost like a, a confused reaction. You know, some, some <laughs> people are really for it and people that would be normally against things like GE crops, a lot of times are for it. And, and then there's still the people that are a little bit skeptical about the use of this technology and want to not see it implemented for chestnut restoration. Yeah, are there other places where using the late oxidase enzyme to defeat a fungal pathogen has worked, like even in a model system like Arabidopsis? Yeah, that's actually how we initially discovered this gene. One of Dr. Powell's postdocs went to a conference and came back with a summary pamphlet of what she had seen there. And in there was a paper about researchers using transgenic tomato expressing OXO for resistance against sclerotinia, which is another oxalate secreting fungal pathogen. And that was Dr. Powell's so-called eureka moment where he said, well, I know that oxalic acid is used by the fungus. Maybe this gene would work well in American chestnut against the blight fungus. Oh, very good. So what are the chances then of a fungus becoming resistant to this particular genetic engineering tweak? That's really hard to say, but I, I think that the chances are quite a bit lower than other types of disease resistance mechanisms. As we discussed before, this gene is not killing the fungus or targeting the fungus itself. It's, it's just neutralizing the acid attack that the fungus is producing. One of the interesting aspects of this gene and its resistance mechanism is that it generates hydrogen peroxide when it breaks down that oxalic acid. And hydrogen peroxide is actually a defense signaling molecule in plants, and it, it activates a suite of defense genes within plants. And so it's likely that when the oxogene is breaking down that oxalic acid, that it's actually activating the American chestnut's own innate defense genes against the fungus. And so it's unlikely that the fungus would produce a type of resistance in the same way that a pesticidal resistance would, where you're killing the fungus and selecting for individuals that are resistant to that toxic agent. We're just neutralizing that acid and activating the American chestnut's own defenses. Yeah, that's something I didn't realize before, because that would also give the tree a little more innate to defense in addition to this ability to detoxify the fungus's best offense. So this is a really nice balance that, that would seem to give 
uh, a broad spectrum resistance to other types of problems. But isn't Darling 50A, and now I know why they call it Darling 50A, by the way, I didn't know that before. Isn't, isn't this kind of problematic because all the trees would be clonal? And if you're just sticking out another monoculture, right? I mean, is that a problem? Yeah, it's uh, that that's one of the common criticisms we hear is that Darling 58 is a clone. And of course, the f very first Darling 58 was a clone. It was grown from from transformed cells, but all the offspring from Darling 58 obviously are not clones. So we started with Darling 58 and then we took Darling 58's pollen and began crossing it with just wild type American chestnut mother trees. And then 50% of the offspring from those crosses inherit that OXO gene and then are resistant. So we can take the pollen and outcross it to genetically diverse mother trees and begin to incorporate their genetic diversity into the blight resistant population. And we have many, many mother trees from throughout the American chestnut range with rich genetic diversity. And we are actively outcrossing our trees. So we're, we haven't done almost any intercrossing yet, which is where we'll take two darling positive trees and crossing them together. We're constantly outcrossing. We're taking our transgenic offspring, we're taking their pollen, and then we're pollinating new wild type mother trees to, to get their diversity in. So we're actually a very long ways away from a clone at this point. We don't even really use the original Darling 58 pollen anymore. It's it's all moved on to the offspring and the and the later generations at this point. Ah, perfect. Can you tell them I'm being devil's advocate here? And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I just think this is such a cool project. And I've been following it for a long time and reading through the comments in, in the public comment period, I'm trying to find some of the things that people don't like. So I guess we talked earlier about how the trees uh, how the American chestnut has this ability to kind of limp along from a stump that you have roots of a tree that was previously there that are still producing suckers that still can grow. Is there a way that Darling 58s or, well, let's just say the blight resistant material could be planted in different areas of its range and then bring back some of limping along stumps with some other kind of strategy? to maybe fungicide or something to bring those back and then be able to directly incorporate this gene with native populations to confer the resistance onto them. Yeah, definitely. We, we would like to plant out in areas where there are chestnuts already present and growing. And some of those are able to get to sizes large enough where they can flower and, and do crosses with. But another thing that people do is they go and they collect scion wood from those from those wild trees and graft them into orchards so that they can be crossed with to incorporate their genetics. But as far as saving the actual trees in the forest, that is pretty difficult. There, there have been some attempts to use biocontrols. There's this one biocontrol that's called hypovirulence, which is a virus that infects the blight fungus. And there was a lot of intense research into that in the, the 70s and the 80s to see if we could get that virus to spread in the forest. And unfortunately, those attempts were unsuccessful. There is work to continue that using genetic engineering, where they're actually genetically engineering blight to, to be able to spread that virus. 
but that has a lot of its own difficulties as far as regulators and stuff like that. So there are small, you can treat individual trees that are sick. You can do things like mud packing. You can mud pack cankers with soil and that will actually cure individual cankers. It won't cure a whole tree and it won't cure a forest, but you can preserve non-resistant trees using a lot of love and attention, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm, I just am thinking of maybe those first steps to getting this gene in the more populations and maybe just kind of a related strategy approach. And has anyone done a kind of a Higgs-based approach to target the oxalic acid producing mechanisms of the fungus that, you know, it's kind of a similar approach, but rather than having the enzyme already made, just make a mechanism that would transfer. So Higgs, the plant will generate small RNAs that will be taken up by the fungus and shut down fungal genes. It's been done for aflatoxins and other things. Does it seem to be an approach that anyone's thought of for this? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked because that is one of the chapters of my dissertation that I'm currently working on right now. This RNAi approach that you're talking about that was used by Monica Schmidt for that aflatoxin that you're talking about is something that I'm actually trying to apply to our trees. And I'm currently developing that system right now. It's kind of cool because that plus the oxalate oxidase, that would be a real good one-two punch. It would be. And one of the reasons why it seems like it could be very promising is that the, the blight fungus oxalic acid production is controlled by a single gene. So you could potentially target that single gene with a, with a suppression cassette and, and have a good effect. And there's actually been research done where they've knocked out that single gene in the blight, and then that rendered a previously virulent blight strain avirulent. So it's kind of already been shown that if you disrupt that gene, it can cause the fungus to become less deadly. Nah, very good. So when you look across the big scope of criticisms, and I'm sure you've seen them or heard them over the years, or you can see them in the public comment period, what are the most or what are the most common criticisms and, and who's making them? And, and are there any criticisms that you and the team have sat back and said, you know, they got a real point here? Yeah, there's a few common ones that you see come up. One of them I was just reading about today is that by releasing these trees that we would potentially be creating a larger reservoir for the blight fungus and that this would potentially have a negative effect on the trees that are already out in the forest because there, there would be more blight as a result of that. And it's, uh, I can see conceptually where they're coming from, but in practice, it doesn't really make too much sense because the blight fungus is already out there if you plant an American chestnut in the forest, in the range, I can guarantee you within a couple of years, it's going to become infected with blight because it's already out there. It doesn't need chestnuts to host in. It, it, it is hosted by many different species of trees. It's also a saprotroph, so it lives on like the dead wood in the forest. And so it's already out there. There's already plenty of it. You don't need to worry about darling trees creating more of it because it's already there to the point that it suppresses all the non-resistant trees in the forest. And have you been maybe, I guess, I don't know what the word is. Have you felt very positive 
about the comments that you've seen so far, especially from kind of traditional enemies of biotechnology have said, we kind of like this application. Yeah, it has been encouraging. One good example of that would be the Sierra Club endorsed our project, and they've been traditionally opposed to genetic engineering, but they see the potential for eco ecosystem benefits from this tree as opposed to any criticisms they might have had about previous genetic engineering projects. And, you know, I think it's the story for a lot of people. A lot of people that were traditionally against genetic engineering for other things, a lot of times come around when they see how we, we've used it in American chess and how we want to use it. Yeah, it is a real step forward for conservation. Someone today, in response to something I posted on Twitter, said, well, it's not going to matter. All the playing field is different. You've got new trees that have taken up those niches, and the American chestnut is gone forever. You're not going to save it by introducing a genetically engineered tree. What would you say to them? Well, it, it is true that it's been a long time since the American chestnut filled its previous niche, and the forest has kind of moved on. Different trees have filled in that gap. But there are definitely plenty of opportunities to plant this tree throughout the range. And it's something that will happen over a long period of time. We're not instantly going to be back to where we were 200 years ago before the blight. It's something that's going to take a really long time. But I, it's, it's the same story with any of these threatened trees. I mean, if there is a threatened, you know, there's hemlock that's threatened. There's ash that's threatened. There's elm. There's all these different trees. And we could just throw up our hands and say, what's the difference anyway? They're gone and other trees are just going to fill it in. That's, I mean, that's true. And that's a choice that you can make. And that's something that we try to tell people is that doing nothing is actually a choice. You're making a choice to do nothing at that point because you have the opportunity to bring these trees back or to preserve them. And by choosing not to do that, they're condemned to their fate, which is the eventual death. And so. You can do nothing and let more and more tree species slip into extinction and let those gaps get filled by fewer and fewer species of trees in, and make the, di the diverse forest less and less diverse by loss of species. Or you can step in and take a proactive approach and say that, no, these trees are worth saving and this diversity is worth preserving. And we have the oppor opportunity to do that with these modern molecular biology tools. No, very good. I think it's, it, it's a really good point because, like you say, if, if, you if you choose not to decide, you have made a choice, right? To quote the famous Dr. Getty Lee. I guess the, the thing that to me about this is that there's so many organizations, I think Nature Conservancy is another one, Sierra Club, who traditionally would not be into this that have given this such a good endorsement and I, i'm really excited about it but still the main goal today was to get others to maybe participate in this public comment period so is there a do you have a, a particular link that you would like to share or any place where people can get more information yeah i actually wrote an op-ed for the hill recently where i kind of go through all the arguments for deregulating this tree as far as safety goes. There was another article published recently by an opponent of ours, 
And I decided I wanted to take the time to answer all those criticisms and, and talk about the safety of the tree. So if you look up an article in the, called the, the USDA's approval of a GE chestnut would be a step forward for threatened species, that will lay out for you in a lot of detail why I think that these trees are safe and should be deregulated. Perfect. And I'll put, put a link in the show notes as well. And I've also written an article in Genetic Literacy Project that outlines some of this as well, just so you have lots of resources to really dig into this. And I encourage you to look at the arguments for and against it and really come up with a codified decision and then tell your story in that public comment period, even if you're against it. You know, rational discussion is what's needed here. Rather than boilerplate, we hate technology rants that come from some of the opponents of this technology. So just in, for those of you who are interested, you can find the public comment website in those articles, those aforementioned articles, but you also can find it at regulations.gov and the, you can use the elegant URL regulations.gov forward slash document forward slash APHIS for the animal and plant, whatever, APHIS, APHIS, and hyphen 2020, because you obviously started this process a while ago, going on three years, hyphen 0030, hyphen 8291, and then forward slash comment, if you want to look at the comments, or just go to that for it. Anyway, you can find it. <laughs> and it's just important that you participate in this because the folks who are against the technology have, you know, uh, autofill forms and robots that are happily spamming the space. Science is not a popularity con contest. It's a merit contest. And your meritorious words will go a long way to help the project. So, Eric, you know, if this does go just fine, when do they anticipate deregulation might happen? So we believe that a hard end date will probably be August of next year. So August of 2023, but we think there's a good chance that it might happen before that. And we hope that it might be potentially before the pollination season begins so that if it is deregulated, we can send pollen out to everyone who has mother trees of their own and begin doing crosses with them. But we don't have a, a firm deadline or anything like that, that we would, that we could say, but uh, we're getting towards the end. So it, it's really encouraging. Yeah, hopefully. And when are you supposed to graduate? That'll be probably the end of next year. Yeah. So you, this may happen. <laughs> it, 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 is, is graduation dependent upon the deregulation? <laughs> I, I don't think so, but that would be a kind of a funny thing to put on there. That'd be a little extra pressure. <laughs> you know, you, you could put it in public comment is that your, your future is dependent upon this going through, you know? <laughs> well, Eric, thank you very much for your time on this today. Best wishes to everybody there on the team, especially Dr. Powell. And please keep us posted on any developments because I would be really excited to talk about them here on the podcast. So thank you very much for joining me again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Kevin. And thanks for all the support over the years. Yeah. Thank you. And, and, you know, and thank you to the folks listening. You know, this is a great time to, to just, after the podcast, go find a computer and take a few minutes, even just a few sentences that simply state that this is a very green application of biotechnology to save essentially an endangered species that is that could return to prominence and, and fill an ecological niche and provide the services ecologically that the American chestnut once provided. This is a really great example of how this technology can be used 
to solve problems for people and a planet. This is a Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.